Welcome to Divine Truth Podcast with Dr. Stephen M. Huffman. Michael is a senior pastor with Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. The purpose of this podcast is to teach and edify God's people through a verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. To learn more about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. And now, here is Pastor Michael Huffman. Prophet Isaiah uh, chapter 53, the prophet Isaiah chapter 53, and, um, and for this morning I want to do something a little bit different than what I normally get to do. Uh, I was informed last Sunday afternoon, or one day this, uh, the first part of the week, I was informed, you blew it. You blew it. Uh, and I said, well, let me count the ways. And I said, well, what do you mean I blew it? And this person said, because you did not exegete, pretty big word, you did not exegete verse 6. And I said, oh, yes, I will. That's next week. And so I get to do something this morning that I normally don't get to do, and that is this. I've preached two-thirds of my sermon, so I've got a third left. And in case you're wondering who that woman person was, it was my wife. She said, you blew it. And, uh, or something like that. That's what I heard. I'm not exactly sure what she said, but that's what I heard. You blew it. And uh, so since I've preached two-thirds of a message already, and I've only got a third left, then I've got s- some filler to do stuff that I normally don't get to do. Because when you study the Word of God, when you study the Bible, it's always beneficial to look at the text from 40,000 feet up. Kind of look at it from a bird's eye view and then kind of gather all this information and as you come closer to the text, kind of bring it in for landing and, and bring everything together. And that's what I want to do this morning for you. And in order to do that, I want to take you through a little historical journey through the nation of Israel. Now, for those of you who may not be a fan of history, there's a few of us nerds in here, but for those of you who are not a fan of history, understand this, that this is biblical history, and I believe that this little journey for you will be quite beneficial because it will bring Isaiah 53 all the more relevant to you. As we have been seeing, and as we have seen so many times as we study the Word of God together, uh, God preserved the nation of Israel throughout all the years, and the protection that God gave Israel is going to culminate in a time when Israel will confess their unbelief and trust their true, true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe, church, that the history of the nation of Israel is probably one of the most remarkable ethnic histories in the history of the world. It is, in my estimation, a long and amazing saga of survival from their point of view. I thank folks with there still being somewhere around 14 to 15 million Jews in existence on the, on the planet 
It is to be understood that these Jews survived with every odd against them. No one here has ever met a Hivite or a Jebusite or a Pezzarite or an Amorite or, or any other ite for that matter from the Old Testament because they're long gone. There's termites. Termites. But these guys are long gone. But the Jews have remained to this day. That's pretty good, Brother Blue. The Jews, I wish I had thought about that. I should have called him before church. I'd have added that to my manuscript. <laughs> but, but the Jews have remained to this day. And from their point of view, it's an amazing survival. However, from God's point of view, it's an even more amazing story of preservation. I suppose that we could hail the human side of this. We could hail the human side of their uh, existence and say that this is a people that was so committed and are so committed to the perpetuation of their existence that they are in fact the greatest testimony to the survival of any people in the history of na any nation of the world. But from the divine standpoint, from the divine viewpoint, we would, we would have to hedge it that in just a, a little bit and say that it is not so much a story of the human will to survive, but rather the nation of Israel is a story of divine protection and divine preservation. There are still Jews in the world today because God determined that it was going to be that way. They are still identifiable in their very tribe, although they don't know what tribe they belong to because all the records were destroyed in 70 A.D. when the temple was burned down. So the, any no-Jew today know which tribe they belong to. They are still identifiable by God. God knows the tribe and he will, th that these people belong to, and he will re-identify those people in those tribes, and he will pick out 12,000 from each of those 12 tribes to constitute the 144,000 Jews that will preach the gospel at the end of human history. And they're still able to be identified with their original tribe, even at the time of the tribulation, right before the return of Jesus Christ. They are a remarkable story. Yes, there is, I suppose, and definitely is a human element of survival. But far more importantly than that, they are a remarkable story of the protection of God. God has protected and God has preserved them providentially. That is, by ordering, by ordering circumstances that ensured their survival. But on a number of occasions, he also protected them miraculously, didn't he? By suspending the normal course of history and the way things normally operate in the world for their protection, such as parting the Red Sea, that they could walk out on dry land as they were leaving Egypt. And so under the providence of God, where he orders the circumstances, and under the miracle power of God, where he suspends nature, God has made sure that these Jews do not go into extinction. This is just absolutely remarkable. They are a very exceptional people. And they have been chosen by God for his purpose. They are not what they are because they've earned it. 
They are not what they are because they have gained it. They are what they are because God has decided it was going to be the way that it is. Nothing less, nothing more. And because they have been chosen by God to fulfill purposes yet foreseen, they are the targets of the enemies of God. They are the target of Satan, who is the archenemy of God. They are the targets of demons that are the co-conspirators and the purveyors of supernatural wickedness in the world. They are the target of men who under the power who are working under the power of the kingdom of darkness. And there have been repeated efforts on a demonic level and on a human level to eliminate the Jewish people throughout all history, all unsuccessful, I might add. But when you think about their history, you understand that this is a small group of people living in a very vulnerable part of the Middle East, surrounded by all kinds of pagan powers who throughout all of history have wanted to obliterate them, but yet they've survived. So many times, the Jewish people could have gone out of existence. A famine during the time of Jacob and his sons could have taken them. They could have literally disappeared from starvation, but God didn't let it happen. What did God do? God, through His providential and sovereign work, God deposited one of the sons of Jacob by betrayal in the midst of Egypt and gave him all the power to disperse food, and they knew that it was available. God planted Joseph, made him an interpreter of dreams, had him prepare Egypt for the famine, and thus saved Jacob and Israel. God, God... They could have been, the nation of Israel could have been obliterated because if Joseph would have done to his brothers what, they, what should have happened, he would have killed all of them, and then the Jewish line would have stopped right there with his other 11 brothers. But God worked through the compassion and the forgiveness of the heart of Joseph to spare his brothers and thus perpetuate the family. The family stayed in Egypt grew from one little family, Jacob and his family, to two million people in the land of Goshen. It took 400 years for that nation to develop. And and at the end of that period, plagues hit Egypt. And those plagues had deadly, devastating, devastatingly deadly effects on the Egyptians. And while they could have suffered the Israelites as well, God made sure that it did not. Pharaoh could have massacred the Jews in mass when, when he had went after them and chased them had God not opened the Red Sea, let them through on dry ground, and drowned Pharaoh and his armies when the sea collapsed on them. They could have disappeared from history in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They complained. They rebelled. They sinned violently against God, and a whole generation of Israelites died. But there was a remnant under the leadership of Joshua that made it into the promised land. And when they came into Canaan, they could have been destroyed because they were entering a land and they were really a meager group of people. And they were facing a formidable pagan enemies who did not want to give up their land or their property. And they could have been destroyed by any number of enemies that occupied the land of Canaan that they went in to conquer. But God made sure that it didn't happen. 
When they got into the land, they settled in the land. They were scattered around the land. They divided the, se- the sections into tribes. And you know what happened. They got caught up in idolatry. They got caught up in apostasy. They got caught up in the worship of false gods. They got caught up in immorality. And their religion became superficial and hypocritical. And they began to be absorbed in the pagan culture. And they could have literally disappeared by melting into that nation. But God made sure that didn't happen. They could have been lost forever by the intermarriage with pagans. And their ethnicity dissipated. And then under Solomon, when the kingdom split, ten tribes went to the north and established what was known as Israel. Two tribes went to the south, Judah and Benjamin, and established what was known as Judah. And in the subsequent years, there was not one good king in the north. They were so rebellious, and they were so evil against God that God brought judgment on them, and the Assyrians came in 722 B.C. and ransacked the northern kingdom, took captives all that they didn't kill, and those people never, ever returned. They, they could have completely faded out of existence. And many in the northern kingdom did. But the only, and so the only ones were left were the two tribes in the south and those who had migrated from the north to south before the, before the Assyrians came and the kingdom was destroyed. And so now you have people in the south, not only that lived there, but also people that migrated from the north. And then the Babylonians came in the year 600 and they ransacked Jerusalem and massacred the people. And those people that did not get killed, they were hauled off to Babylon where they could be mingled with the Chaldean culture. People like Daniel and his three friends that were given that their Jewish names were taken away and they were forced to wear Chaldean names and they were forced to learn Babylonian or Chaldean culture. And that could have spelled the end of the people of Israel. But God made sure it didn't happen. They could have literally, while in Babylon, the whole people could have been absorbed in intermarriage and mixed religion and lost to human history forever. And literally, it was because of that intermarriage that took place in Babylon that we now had, that we had a race of people known as the Samaritans. And that could have caused Israel to dissipate forever, but it didn't happen. Seventy years later, a massive remnant came back and reestablished their land. And that's how their history went. A king arose in Persia. You say it in Greek, Xerxes, but but you probably know his name better as Artaxerxes or Ahasuerus. He, He reigned as king of Persia from 486 to 465. And during his reign, the Jews were still present in the land of Persia. However, there was an effort to genocide the Jews led by a man by the name of Haman who wanted to exterminate all of the Jews. And you remember the story because you can read the story in the book of Esther. How that God used Esther in the kingdom for such a time as this to save the Jewish people from genocide in the land of Persia. And God so providentially ordered the beauty contest as whereas Esther won the beauty contest, became the wife of Ahasuerus and used her favor to save his people from total annihilation. And then came the Greek power. Antiochus Epiphanes attacked and slaughtered the Jews. Then came the Romans in 70 A.D. and massacred hundreds of thousands of Jews. And then in the subsequent years went towns and villages around Jerusalem continually killing Jews. The story of their survival is an astonishing story of God's protection. 
from the year 250 A.D. Let's go, on, let's go from there to 1933. You say, Pastor, we're going to be here a while if you go from A.D. 250 to 1933. Well, we'll just sum up. All right, you can check this in history. It's all, it's all well chronicled. Jews in various places were attacked. They were expelled from their cities. They were expelled from their countries. And they, were, and they experienced forced converse to other religions at the point of death. They were enslaved, they were outlawed, they were massacred, they had their property, property confiscated, they were forced to wear identifying badges so that they could be in, uh, alienated socially, and they were put through all kinds of deadly inquisitions. And on a number of occasions, they were burned alive. That was from A.D. 250 to 1933. And then you pick up in 1938 and go to 1945 where you have the atrocities under the leadership of Adolf Hitler where multiple millions of Jews were slaughtered. And today, Jews are the direct uh, object of the assault against the Islamic world who wants nothing more than to obliterate every Jew that's on the face of the planet. And so when you talk about the survival of the Jews, you're talking about something that is really astonishing and it's more, folks, than just a testimony to their will to survive. It's a testimony to God's preservation. Yes, they no doubt had a strong will to live. Who doesn't? But that's not the explanation. The explanation to their survival is the purpose of God. Why have they survived as an ethnic people to today? The answer simply is this, because God has not yet fulfilled the promise He made to Abraham. He has not fulfilled the promise He made to David and the other prophets of the Old Testament to bless the nation of Israel with salvation and to make Israel a blessing to the world. And that will not happen. Israel will not be a blessing to the world through their personal salvation until they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that will happen in the future according to Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 where Zechariah says that they will look on the one whom they've pierced and they will recognize that He is in fact their Messiah. You know, the future of Israel, the future promise of Israel's salvation is not only a promise that was given in the Old Testament, but it's also a promise that was given in the New Testament as well. In Romans chapter 11, Paul, talking about this in verse 25, he says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness is hap is, in part is happened to Israel, when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That's the church. That's the church. In other words, when all the elect of the church are gathered in, then the salvation to the Jews are going to happen. And when will it be complete? Verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. And that's from Isaiah chapter 59. So Paul says there's coming a time when the, when the church will be complete. And when that is complete, then will come the salvation of Israel. That's God's covenant to them. Israel is preserved for future salvation. That's why, folks, they're still around. That's the only reason that they're still around. That's why they have, that's why they have survived the onslaught of the forces of hell. 
That's why they have survived the hatred of the forces of humanity. But at the same time, listen to this, they have been under divine judgment. I mean, that's three strikes. That's three strikes. They've been under divine judgment. And this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of the law to do them. And all the people said, Amen. In other words, and I hope you read that whole passage, you'll find this. You obey me, what? I'll bless you. You disobey me, I'll curse you. They disobeyed God and they continue to disobey God. They are a cursed people. They are under the judgment of God. And so God is preserving the very people that He's judging. They rejected their Messiah, and they reject their Messiah. They believe that Christians are blasphemers because we worship a man who himself was a blasphemer because he claimed to be God. They follow the lie that salvation is by works. Salvation is by human effort. Salvation is by self-righteousness. And they are a cursed people right now under the judgment of God, but at the same time being preserved by God, who is the very one judging them. There's a couple of Old Testament passages that I want to turn your attention to this morning by way of introduction. The first one is in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, it's an amazing, amazing prophecy. Amazing things that Ezekiel has to say. Amazing promise that God gave to the nation of Israel. And I'd encourage every one of you to go back and, and study this passage. It's amazing. The beginning in verse number 16 of Ezekiel 36. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, and that's the title that God gave to Ezekiel. When the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings, okay? That, that's clear, right? They defiled it by their way and by their doing. They're the fault. They're the ones to blame, God says. Their way was before me as the uncleanliness of a removed woman. And that's literally talking about a woman in her impurity. It's a pretty gross description. Then verse 18. Wherefore, I poured out my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their doings, I judged them. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? It's exactly what happened. Verse 20. And when they entered unto the heathen, whether they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said to them, these are the people of the Lord and are gone forth out of His land. What is this saying? They were scattered all over the world, God says. I scattered them all over the world because of their doings, because of their deeds, because of their sin. I scattered them all over the world. They profaned my holy name because people said, what kind of a God do these people serve who can't even keep them in their own land? And so they begin to mock God, the heathen. Verse 21. But I had pity, why? For mine name, for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whether they went. You know, the Jews all over the world are a beleaguered Jewish people struggling in their own history. 
And you know, it's really hard to sell the rest of the nations on the greatness and the glory of your God if the God you serve can't even keep you in your own land. That's what the heathen are saying. Therefore said unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, heathen whether ye win. God says, I've got to do something to get my reputation back. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in, in you before their eyes. God says this, the only way that I'm going to be able to put my glory back on display in the nations is to put my glory on display in you. And so that's God says that's what he's going to do. Verse 24, for I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and you and will bring you into your land. We have a preview of that, didn't we? We have a preview of that, didn't we? When did that happen? 1948. 1948, they went back, they reconstructed their nation. Now, folks, listen, that is not the salvation of Israel. 1948 was not the salvation of Israel. That was simply a preview, an indication of what is to come. I'll bring you back, and then it happened. And here it is in verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. And this is what Jesus is making reference to in John 3 when he tells Nicodemus, you're born again by the water and the word. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also I will give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Folks, listen, that is a statement of their salvation. This is so dramatic. God says, in concern for my holy name, to vindicate his faithfulness and to demonstrate his glory, God will one day save the Jews. Not for their sake, but for his. God did not save the Gentiles for their sake. God saved the Gentiles for the glory of his name, for his sake. Don't ever think that you're saved because of you. You're saved because of the glory of God. And because God has chosen to put His glory on display by the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles. We're not only saved by grace through faith, we understand that. But church, listen, you are saved not for your sake. You are saved for the sake of the glory and the name of Almighty God. The same reason that He will save Israel. Now in Jeremiah chapter 31, there's another passage there that I want you to look at. And this is really the high point of Jeremiah's prophecy. In Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. What covenant is that? That's the covenant of the law, right? That's the covenant of the law. That's the Mosaic covenant. That's the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And they broke it even before Moses got time to come down and read it to them. 
As Moses was coming down off of Mount Sinai, the people of Israel were disobeying the very tablets that he was carrying. Verse 33, And this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's the same thing Ezekiel said, isn't it? Verse 34, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. That's the conversion of the nations. Folks, listen, and all the components are the same. There is forgiveness, there is regeneration, there is conversion, there is true knowledge, there is obedience. They will believe themselves to be wretched sinners, and they will believe the Lord Jesus Christ to be the only Savior. They will believe it collectively as a nation. That is, folks, a testimony to the sovereignty of God in salvation. The only way people get saved individually is by the work of God. The only way the nation of Israel will ever get saved is by the work of God. God saves them. Now as we look back in Isaiah chapter 53, God has done all those miraculous actions to save them as a nation, and, and brings them to a point of repentance. Then they will come to this point in the future. They will make the confession that is here in Isaiah chapter 53. These will be their words. And right now we are in verses 4 through 6. They're, they're, going, they're, they're looking back and they're going to see the Christ whom they have pierced. They're going to reevaluate their attitude because remember in verse 1 which says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? We didn't believe it. We had heard all this, but we didn't believe it. We were not impressed with his origin. Remember that? We were not impressed with his origin. He was like a sucker branch. He was like a weed. He was like a root out of parched ground. We weren't impressed with his life. They said he had no stately form. He had no majesty. There was nothing about him that attracted him to us. And we certainly were not impressed with his death. He was despised. He was forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. In fact, they said that he, his death was so despicable that we, that we didn't even want to look at him. He was despised. And we thought of him as absolutely Nothing. He was nobody, so they thought. But now, everything's changed. We know all those griefs, all those sorrows that he bore were ours. Were ours. Surely he bore our griefs. Surely he carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken. Smitten of God and afflicted. The Jews said we thought that we were, we thought that he died. We thought that God was punishing him because of his blasphemy. But now we know that he was pierced through for our transgressions. We know now that he was crushed for our iniquities. He was scourged for our well-being. Complete reversal of their estimate about Jesus Christ. 
They, they will admit one day in the future, they will admit their horrible error in their thinking about Jesus Christ. They will confess. They will confess. They know He was pierced. They know He was crushed. They know He was bruised. They know that He was punished at the end of a mock trial. They know He was scourged. That's all part of the history. Every Jew knows that and admits that that happened. But one day, they're going to admit that it wasn't for His blasphemies. It was for theirs. One day they're going to say, we understand our transgressions. We understand it was our iniquities. Our transgressions. Our iniquities. Those are the negatives. We will confess that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one that we pierced, was punished by God for our transgressions. That's the negative. But then there's a positive. He was suffered. He suffered for our well-being. Notice what it says in verse 5. But He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. Look at all the pronouns in there. The personal pronouns. Our transgressions. Our iniquities. Our peace. We are healed. You see, the Jews thought when Jesus died that He was dying because of His blasphemies for claiming to be God. But the day will come when they will look and they will look upon the one that they've pierced and they will say, whoa, wait a minute, we were totally wrong. He did this for us. He was crushed for us. He was bruised for us. And there's one more thing I want you to see this morning in verse 6. I I want you to help you see verse 6 in kind of a different way. Look at verse 6. Where the prophet says, recording the future words of Israel. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of who? Us all. You know, in verse 6, we have the, what could be called the deepest recognition of sin. They talk about their attitudes when they say we had a, we had a wrong estimation of him. We esteemed Him, or we, or we considered Him, or we thought of Him, or we reckoned Him incorrectly. In other words, our thinking about Him was corrupt. They talk about their behaviors. That's the transgression of iniquities. They understood, they understood the issue. They understood the issue was their corrupt thinking. They understand that the issue was their corrupt behavior. But there's something else that a sinner must come to grips with. And that is just, it's just not a matter of how we think. It's just not a matter of our attitudes. It's just not a matter of what we do. It's just not a matter of what we, of what we lack. Confession of sin comes down to this bottom line, folks. It is a matter of who we are. It's a matter of who we are. The problem, folks, listen, the problem is not what we think. The problem is not what we do. That's not why people go to hell. Did you know that? People don't go to hell because of how they think or what they do. People go to hell apart from Christ because of who they are. And it's because of who they are that they think that way and do those things. 
They're not, they don't sin, therefore are sinners. They sin because they are first in their nature are sinful. And the Israel will say, listen, we thought the wrong thing. We acted the wrong way. We made the wrong type of impression. We made the wrong type of assessment because we are like sheep. Why? Because of our nature. It's all about who we are. And the sinner today must come to grips with the fact of not only their wrong thinking and their wrong actions, but they do those things because of who they are, because they're corrupt in their nature. It is more profound than maybe simply they would recognize. This part of the confession looks not at the manifestation of sin, but it looks at the cause. Here's the problem. All we like sheep have gone astray. It's our nature, right? Sheep act like sheep. Sheep don't act like anything but sheep. We act consistent to our nature. How does a sheep act? Sheep are stupid. Sheep are defenseless. And sheep are helpless wanderers. They don't come in flocks by, like geese. They don't come in herds like cows. They don't stay together, and so sheep is a good analogy. Because built inside of sheep is the tendency to wander away from security, to wander away from safety and provision, to wander off uh, away from the group by themselves, because each one's going their own way. Our problem, church, is deep in our nature. We are like sheep. Stupid. How dare you call me stupid, Pastor? Well, how often do you run after sin? That's pretty stupid, isn't it? I know it is. I'm pretty stupid. I'm, uh, I've got a doctor degree, but I'm pretty stupid when it comes down to life. Because I'm just like a sheep. We're like sheep. Defenseless, stupid, and wanderers. You know, it was Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, where it says in verse 36, But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as what? Sheep having no shepherd. They're just going the way, they're just going their own way, following their own sinful path, and as their nature dictates. They follow the, the intuition of their own wretched fallenness. I mean, that's what sinners do, right? They follow the intuition of their own wretched fallenness. I mean, how many options do you have? How many options do sinners have? I mean, there's no, there's no end to the options, right? right? I mean, you can follow your own way without Jesus Christ, and you can follow and choose a path of sin that you want to go down individually because you and I are just like sheep and we can go the way of the sheep oh you're going to meet along some people along the way you're going to bump into but it's personal it's independent because that's how that's how sheep function and folks listen that is part of true confession this is genuine repentance that recognizes that the evidence of sin are portrayed in the nature of sin Gathering all that guilt, gathering all that punishment as it were, dying not for what he did, but dying for because of who we are. And Jesus bears the full weight of the judgment of God on himself, and in that sense takes the punishment of God. 
Because that's what he says at the end of verse 6, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our evil deeds, our evil thoughts, our evil deprivations, our evil nature, all of that was laid on the servant of Jehovah and he bears the weight, the full weight of that punishment. That's what it is. And the Lord calls that iniquity to fall on him. The Lord himself chose the sacrificial lamb. And the servant Messiah willingly, voluntarily submitted himself as the vicarious substitute. God caused him to pick up all the guilt that belongs to us and take the full fury of divine wrath. Five different ways in those verses. Five different ways it speaks about Jesus Christ being the vicarious substitutionary provision. Dying in our place. Folks, that's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? And just sort of a footnote here. It wasn't sin that killed Jesus. It was God that killed Jesus. It wasn't sin. He didn't have any sin. He was sinly, sinless, holy, blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Sin did not kill Jesus. God killed Jesus to pay for sin that he never committed, but that you and I committed. Jesus did not die as a moral influence, showing the power of love. Jesus didn't die as an example of sacrifice for a noble cause. Jesus didn't die because he was a victim trapped in unjust circumstances and needed to be rescued. There's only one way to understand the death of Jesus Christ. There's only one way to understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and that is under the principle of penal substitution. He was our substitute to take the penalty of God for our sins to satisfy the justice of God. And the New Testament affirms that, doesn't it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the partaker of the righteousness of God in Him. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that He bore in His body our sins. Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that He was a curse for us. That's the New Testament affirmation of Isaiah chapter 53. Folks, listen, God has not dealt with us according to our iniquities. He has not dealt with us according to our transgressions and our sins. But nor being a righteous judge, a righteous God, can He or did He overlook our sins, but He punished them in Christ, the servant, the Messiah, who took our place. And because of that, grace reigns in righteousness. And that will be the confession of Israel that they make in the future. And that is the confession that every sinner must make today. And that is the whole reason throughout all the history of Israel, throughout all the history of Jews, how many times that they could have been obliterated. That is the only reason God has kept them around because of a future salvation 
You know the only reason that God doesn't kill you in the very first moment of your very first sin? For those of you who are saved today, the reason God didn't kill you the very first moment of your very first sin is because of your future salvation. God preserved you for that very reason, and that only reason, because that magnified His glory. That magnified His glory. And this is the same confession that every sinner must make. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I secured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 11, For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever, don't you like that? I'm glad I was one of the whosoevers. Just as, uh, just as the bulletin says today on the far right of the page, it says that everyone who comes to Jesus Christ will find him to be a perfect Savior. Jesus said in John chapter 6, Come to me, and I will in no wise cast anyone away. You come to Jesus Christ in faith, he has promised that he will never cast you aside. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. That means God will accept you now. This is the day of salvation. Folks, not only do we recognize the fact that our actions are wrong, our thoughts are wrong, but the, the whole root of the problem is our nature. Because we're just like sheep. And that will be the confession the Jews will make in that day when they look upon the one they've pierced, they recognize him as the Messiah, they will say, oh boy, we made a mistake, we were wrong, now we know why he died. And that is the only reason God keeps Israel around. Today is the day of salvation. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word this morning. Thank you and praise you, Father, for the text. Such a rich, living text. We praise you and thank you, Father, for its truth. We praise you, Father, for its power in our lives. Father, we thank you for the power that it has to show the way of salvation. Father, we look at the nation of Israel and we look at all they've been through, both in biblical history and in, act, and in contemporary history. We, we see all that they've, that they've been through. and What an amazing, amazing story of divine providence, divine power to preserve the people. But Father, every one of us sitting in this room today that are, have been born again, are also recipients of that divine preservation. You kept us around, those of us who were saved, you kept us around for one reason. For the glory of your great grace. So that your great grace and your great power will be seen in us through your salvation. That through our salvation, you are put on display just like the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. God said, I didn't do it for your benefit. I did it for mine. 
to put my holy name on display. Father, I praise you and thank you for all that you've done. What about you this morning? Have you confessed? Have you trusted Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you had all of the elements of truth, faith, confession, regeneration, conversion, obedience? They're all elements of truth, saving faith. Is that you this morning? Or are you just someone that has prayed a prayer, maybe made a statement about being a Christian, but your life is void of obedience. Not that obedience saves, but if you are a Christian, if you are saved, you're going to want to obey Christ. So how is it with you? Have you confessed your very nature? That my actions and my thoughts are wrong because my nature is wrong? Is that you today? That be you today. I would encourage you leave here today, find me and we can take the word of God and show you what it means to be a true Christian. And for that belief, those believers here today, we all have people in our lives, family, friends, co-workers, whoever they may be, that have never trusted Christ. They've never confessed the wretchedness of their own nature. They never made the confession that Israel one day in the future will make we like sheep have gone astray. Our problem was, yeah, Christ died for our transgressions. He died for our, he was punished for our iniquities. We are healed by his stripes. But he had to do all that because of our nature. Because we're like sheep, we wander. We go our own way, we do what we want to do. We all know those people that have even maybe made claims but have never confessed the nature us and never are not truly born again. Salvation is not just admitting the facts. Jesus died on the cross. Not even admitting, not even just saying Jesus died on the cross. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. But salvation is Jesus died on the cross because of my nature, because I was corrupt and I needed to be raised in life. And only Christ was the perfect sacrifice to do that. Thank you, Father, for this truth. We praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name.